Can I ask you a question this morning? You say, yeah, you're the one with the microphone, right? So here's my question. Who gets to define you? Who gets to define your purpose, your goals? Who gets to define what you do on a Saturday morning? Who is it? I was um, at work a few months back and um, started listening to some music, which I'll do regularly, and I put on this album by Ray LaMontagne, if you know who Ray LaMontagne is, not a Christian person at all, but he wrote this song called No Pressure, and in the chorus of this song, uh, he says, you know, he says this, he says, anything you want your life to mean, it can mean. Anything you want your life to be, it can be. And then the chorus concludes, but hey, no pressure. Ray LaMontagne is putting his finger on this idea that when we self-define our purpose in our life, when we uh, kind of chart our course and say, this is where I'm heading, this is what I'm going to do, when we become self-defining in that way, it comes with pressure, doesn't it? comes with immense pressure for us to be successful, for us to be what we want to be. And it highlights, the song highlights that there is an immense amount of pressure for us to be self-defining. In his book, uh, Union with Christ, Rankin Wilborn actually lays out four different areas in which when we self-define ourselves, these are the uh, latent pressures that come with it. First, being self-directed is paralyzing. Imagine you're a high school graduate, you're looking at the future in front of you, and you've got this whole world of options, of things you can do, and you are just paralyzed with options. Second, self-direction leads to anxiety and depression. You're that high school senior that looks at all of these options, and you start to narrow down the field, and it inevitably means that you're not going to do some of the things that you thought you could do. You become depressed. We become depressed by there's so many options. Dr. Alan Ehrenberger says this, success is attributed to and expected of autonomous individuals. That when we define ourselves, we almost always have to try to become the success story. And it comes with this depression, this paralyzation. Third, Rankin-Wilborn says that self-direction leads to second-guessing. Did I do the right thing? Did I choose the right option? Did I uh, choose the right path for myself? And fourth, our self-direction actually robs us of freedom. And for this, we turn to the theologian Princess Elsa from Frozen. And when she leaves her reality and she goes out and she tries to be true to herself, she locks herself in a palace of ice outside of the town, isolated. That's my cultural mandate for today, Princess Elsa. See, the truth is, you and I are least qualified to be the person who self-defines who we are. If we were honest about ourselves and we were kind of open up the resume, you and I are far too limited to be able to define what we should do and why we should do it. We know far too little. We change too often. We live too short and we forget too much. 
defining humanity demands a full perspective of one who knows everything exhaustively. And if we are to say, uh, this is how we fit into the cosmos, we need someone who actually sees the fullness of the cosmos. Better yet, we need one who built the cosmos, who spoke the cosmos into existence. So this morning, while we have this huge question in front of ourselves, who gets to define who you are, we inevitably arrive at this conclusion that God is the one who defines our existence. See, our big idea this morning is that God made man in his image, and we live in this place. We live under his word, under God's word and authority, and yet we live over his creation. And what Brian has read for us this morning really carves out a space in God's world for us, that we are meant to live underneath of God's word and his authority in our life, and yet we're to translate that word and authority to those things that we oversee. So you and I live in a workplace, we live in a home life, we live in all of these different contexts and milieus that we have to live out the authority of the Word of God to us. There's a diagram I want to put in front of you and that just kind of lays out the basic kind of visual perspective that there's God who gives his authority to man and then man exercises his authority over creation. And this morning, our outline's pretty simple. We're going to see that man is uh, unique in God's creation in verses 26 and 27, and that we're unique in our function in verses 28 through 30, or even into 31. So we want to dive in this morning, and I want to ask that God blesses our time. So I'm going to pray one more time that God allows us to hear from him. So God, we ask now that you would open our eyes, unstop our ears so that we could see you and hear you with clarity where we recognize the importance of this moment, that you want to speak your word to us, that you want to define who we are. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak your word with clarity, and anything that's not from you would be forgotten. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, we're going to see that man is unique in his creation. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Ladies, do you feel like you're having dominion over every creepy thing, right? Okay, guys too, we'll admit that. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. See, the first thing we see is that we are designed in God's image and likeness. We're designed in God's image and likeness. And when God starts this off, the first thing he does is he deliberates amongst himself. Now, think about this. What he says in verse 26 is that God said, let us make man. And so God starts to interact with himself. We haven't seen anything quite like this in Genesis 1 yet, have we? We haven't seen God say to himself, let us make light. And so then he speaks and there's light, right? There's, There's nothing like this. This is unique in the creation account that God speaks to himself. And what's most notable about this is that, is that God speaks Trinitarianly, if that's a, even a word that I just made up. He, he speaks, he says, let us make man in our image. And it implies that there are more than one person that's speaking here. And th- 
Theologically, we know that the Trinity is one God who's represented in three persons. So there's diversity, yet unity in the Trinity, and God reflects that here. We've already seen this in Genesis 1, by the way. Remember, the Spirit of God was hovering above the waters, and then God the Father spoke, and so that there was light. We've seen kind of a Trinitarian interaction here. But even here, we see something different. We see this collaboration amongst the persons of God. Let us make man in our image. And they don't just kind of fight over it. They're all uniformly saying the same thing, aren't they? They're they're separate persons, but they reflect the same intention. So God collaborates. He he, uh, deliberates amongst himself. And so what he does is he creates mankind in his image. You know, scholars have talked for years about what it means to be made in the image of God. And I've uh, read no shortage of pages this week trying to define exactly what it means to be made in the image of God. There's all kinds of opinion about what this means. Uh, some think it's uh, that man is made moral like God is moral. Some think that uh, man is, is given the capacity to reason, to think through things like God reasons. Man is spiritual like God. Uh, man is relational like God. There's all kinds of answers, and we can probably just affirm all of those to be true. That to be made in the image of God is multifaceted. That you really kind of dumb it down into one particular aspect that is all defining of what the image of God is. is probably missing quite a bit of what God has done for us and creating us like Him. And so there's this fullness that God describes for us. But what is clear is, is in this passage, not necessarily what the image of God means, but what its purpose is in the creative account. See, what, what God is highlighting here in verses 26 through 31 is that God has uniquely situated us in his creation. And he's going to use this image of God that we were created in to establish us as an authority. See, we alone are created in God's image. The fish of the sea aren't created in God's image. The the animals of the land aren't created in God's image. The, The birds that fly in the sky are not created. The sun and the moon, they are not created in God's image. Man alone, male and female, are created in God's image. Theologians have called this year for years. They, they love to throw Latin terms around. They, they call it the imago dei, the image of God. And Walter Brueggemann says this. He says, there is only one way in which God is imaged in the world, and only one, and it's humanness. And God has chosen in his infinite wisdom to show the world who he was through his created man in his own image. We stand as individual beacons of God's goodness. We highlight God's nature for the world. Now, here's the thing. You and I were created in God's image, but the thing about it is is that we mar God's image in our sin, didn't we? There's this fascinating passage in Psalm 73 where the psalmist is, he's reflecting on, on his world. And he's, he's recognizing the hardness of his own heart. In 73, verse 21, he says, When my soul was embittered and I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. And what the psalmist is getting at is that he's kind of forfeited his right as, as image bearer. And in his hardness of heart against God, he's become like the beast. You remember the story of, of King Nebuchadnezzar in, in Daniel uh, chapter 4, 
Nebuchadnezzar is full of pride. And so he's built this giant statue that all of the Israelites and all of the peoples that they've conquered are to worship. And so Nebuchadnezzar like writes this song that everybody's supposed to sing and they're supposed to bow down. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they, they don't bow down. And this whole thing kind of develops. Well, Nebuchadnezzar eventually looks at his kingdom in chapter four and he says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. He says, look at all this that I've built. Look at all my glory that I've established here. And in the very next moment, God strikes him with madness. And what happens? In his pride, in his selfishness, Nebuchadnezzar eats grass like an ox. And the Bible says that his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. He becomes like this wild animal. He gets down on all fours and starts eating grass for this period of so many years because God struck him down in his pride and in his arrogance. See, when we sin, we forfeit our image of God. We say, I I don't want to be created uniquely before God. I want to be my own person. I'm going to establish my own glory. And so we're separating ourselves from this divine blessing that God has put on us. And so this is what we see in the the diagram that we saw before. Before we saw that uh, it was God and man and uh, and creation. Well, here we see that God is separated from man in his sin. And so we end up on the same level as the creation itself. We, We end up on the same level as animals and plants and everything else. We forfeit that unique spot that God has carved out for us in our creation. There's an example that we saw recently here. I don't know if you follow this or not, but Union Seminary, uh, kind of a liberal seminary, I think it's out of New York, uh, they had this chapel session a few months ago where they started confessing their sins to plants. And so the, the, the Union Seminary Twitter read this, today in chapel we confess to plants. Together we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us but whose gift we too often fail to honor. I don't even know what you, what do you say to a plant? How do you confess? Hey, remember that time I went on vacation and I forgot to water you for two weeks? Sorry about that. But all of a sudden, the creation is brought on par with mankind. We do this all the time. I I saw an article, Albert Moeller talked about it on his podcast, and he was talking about um, in Toledo, they've given uh, rights, uh, personal status to Lake Erie, so that Lake Erie now has rights that aren't to be contradicted, so that someone can speak up on behalf of the rights of Lake Erie. See, the confusion concerning our place and creation, to whom we confess and with whom we are authoritative, is as confused as ever. And when we relate to God in sin, we lose our place in the world. You say, okay, this is a little bit abstract to me right now, Jason. This is a little bit, uh, you know, ivory tower, theoretical to me. Let me just think about this for a second. Uh, You ever see your credit card bill just inflate? Ever see that where it just kind of gets out of control? You just keep buying stuff? I do. That tug on your heart to make that next purchase? Isn't that the way that we kind of elevate the created things? to try and satisfy us in a way that only God can. 
See, Christians, beware. Difficulty with God can often translate to preoccupation with things. When we lose connection with God in the divine, we turn to material things, whether it's money or whatever else it might be. When our vertical relationship with God is off, we naturally turn toward something created to fill its place. But God designed that our unique creation was to translate to some particular function, to a particular purpose. It's not just that God made us in his image and said, that's great. He wanted to put us to work. And this is what we see in the remainder of Genesis chapter 1. We have a unique function in verses 28 through 30. See, just as God created man uniquely, he now sets him to this unique purpose. And so theologians have referred to verse 28 as this cultural mandate, Uh, There's so many interpretations about what man is to do, but it should be pretty straightforward. As his image bearers, God wants man to reproduce and to kind of keep uh, or subdue his creation. Look at verses 28 through 30. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast on the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given uh, every green plant for food. And it was so. See, God starts with his creative work, and then he hands over all of his creation to man. And first he starts in verse 28 with this purpose. First, God blesses man in verse 28, verse, verse 28, the first part of that. And this isn't the first time that we've seen God bless something, right? He blessed the birds in verse 22. He's going to bless the Sabbath in chapter 2, verse 3. And so he's kind of blessing mankind. He's saying, here's your purpose. Here's your orientation. By the way, throughout the book of Genesis, every time we see a blessing that's given, it's kind of meant to kind of give direction to the person that receives it. And so God is kind of giving direction to mankind here about what exactly they're supposed to do. And so he fills that out in, in verse 28. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He, one of God's purposes in mankind is multiplication. God's designed us to be reproducing. As we bear children, we kind of fill the earth with image bearers, right? As a church, we've seen growth specifically from childbirth, right? There's two ways to grow a church. There's church, there's conversions, and then there's childbirth, right? We thank God for both of those. Some of us are pregnant at this very moment. We're excited for you. We're excited to see that. But we fill the world with image bearers. We cover God's earth. That's what his design was, to fill the earth with his image. Ever think about that? That's God's design. God so had entrusted his image to people that he wanted to cover the earth with his image. That he wanted to bring glory to his name as he saw us reproduce. For those of you who might be thinking, what about singleness? Or what about those who can't bear children? I don't think you're any less an image bearer. 
I don't think you do the second part of this to subdue the earth any less. I think you can be just as glorifying to God. Sometimes God frustrates our purposes. We'll see that later on in the book of Genesis when men and women, uh, Abraham and, and, and Sarah can't have children. God frustrates their purpose. But he goes on, not just to be fruitful and multiply, but to subdue the earth. Is that what he says there in verse 28? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That word actually it has the meaning of like tramping down like weeds. It, it's actually that you would uh, kind of control the creation that you exist in. And we see this kind of brought out in the next chapter when Adam and Eve are in the garden and, and God gives Adam this task. And what's his task? His task is to keep the garden uh, to cultivate it and to keep it. And then he's also given this task of naming these animals that are kind of brought before him. And so Adam uh, kind of exhibits what it is to subdue the creation by caring for it, by actually taking care and, 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 and overseeing these animals. Think about this, that as he's cultivating this garden, he's providing food for these animals, that he is the one who's actually sustaining creation as he fulfills God's mandate for him. See, the truth is, as, as we read this verse, that you and I are both in creation and over creation. That we were created just like every other part of the world. We're in creation. God has made us a part of his world, but we're also over creation. God has set us over uh, what he has made. And sure enough, this is broken, but it's not lost in our day. In a few weeks, we'll read in Genesis chapter 3 when sin is introduced into the world and by Adam and Eve, everything kind of takes on a brokenness to it, but we haven't fully lost our dominion either. Right? That's why we control the flow of electricity. That's why we were able to heat up water, well, kind of heat up water for baptism this morning. It's uh, why we have gardens that we cultivate until it's why we have animals in our house. These are all signs of our ongoing place in God's creation. Andy Crouch says this. He says, Human beings were always meant to move out into the world. They were meant to discover all of its possibilities and care for the world as God would care for it, uncovering the possibilities of the world and bringing them to fullness. See, what we were given as we were called to subdue the earth is we are called to go out into the world and to beautify the world, to spread God's beautiful image throughout the world and to cultivate goodness and kindness in this world that he's created. He goes on to say that we were to make something of the world in the creator's name. That as we as image bearers go out, we uh, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, that we're actually creating God's presence in the world. And so God has entrusted this world to us as a means for us to express his imago dei throughout the world. In verses 29 through 30, we see God just entrust all the resources. You don't send someone to a task without giving them the necessary resources to do it. And so in verses 29 and 30, he gives us all the plants that we could eat of those plants. It's interesting to note that he doesn't give us animals yet. That happens later on in Genesis chapter 10. Um, and there's reason to think that we might be able to eat animals here, but that's really close to my heart that we can still eat animals, just so you know. Uh, I don't even know why I'm going down this rabbit trail right now. Let's get this thing back on track, right? 
See, here's the thing, is that that you and I were created in God's image, and we we ruined that image by by sinning, by breaking our relationship with God. But sin has also affected our ability to to subdue the earth. In Romans chapter 8, we were just reading this uh, in in men's prayer breakfast. In Romans chapter 8, there's three different groanings that, that God puts forth. He says that we groan in our sin, that the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf. But the first thing that he says is that creation itself is groaning. And that it's groaning as it waits for the sons of God to be revealed, for you and I to be revealed as sons of God, to be brought into God's presence, for sin to finally be stripped away for us so that creation can be brought back to restoration and renewal. That's God's promise in Revelation 21, right? Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new. He desires not to just burn up this creation, but to renew it and restore it. And so that's what we're waiting on. This creation itself is groaning for us to be revealed as the sons of God that we are. And to be clear, creation doesn't groan because of population density. Creation doesn't groan because of pollution. Creation doesn't groan because of any of these other cultural things that we are afraid of. Creation groans because of our sin. Creation groans because you and I have violated the right or the purpose of God in our lives. And we do not submit to God's purpose and plan for us. Genesis 3, we see that in response to Adam and Eve's sin, God curses the ground that Adam works. He says, hey, with thorns and thistles it will grow for you. And so Adam is frustrated in his purpose. He's there, he's called to cultivate and keep the garden, but now God has frustrated his purpose so that when he works the ground, it produces weeds, thorns, and thistles. I don't even fight the weeds anymore in my lawn, it just happens, right? We recognize that God has subjected the world to futility in hope that the sons of God might be revealed. So our sin breaks our unique connection with man. And there's a a diagram here as well. Uh, It breaks our unique connection with God so that we are no longer image bearers and it it causes creation to groan underneath us. Hey, there we go. Uh, So uh, man relates to creation as creation groans underneath our leadership. As we kind of look at this passage, we see that God has carved out this space for us, right? Right? That we live underneath his rule and his authority, but we live as rule and authority over his creation. But it doesn't seem to work that way. I mean, Dayton knows about the danger of tornadoes in these last six or nine months, don't we? It feels like we see all kinds of wildfires, whether it be California or Australia or earthquakes. It seems like all of these things are beyond our control. So how do we express dominion over creation? How can we say that? Or what about human sinfulness? It only increases in our culture. So how are we really made in the image of God? And how do we see that, uh, that image bearing kind of played out in humanity? See, if you and I were just to read the news reports there would be no way that we would ever kind of draw the conclusion that you and I were made in God's image. That we were kind of these uh, vice regents of God made to represent him on the earth. We would never make that conclusion. We would look and say, this, this man is just as powerless as anything else. 
But as we talk about what it means to be human, it's good for us to look back at the person of Christ. We, we know that Christ was two things, right? He was fully God and he was fully man. And so when we see, when we talk about who man was meant to be, we should have a discussion about who Jesus was or is. And what we see is that Jesus exemplified this under God, over creation dynamic in all of its fullness. Just think about this for a second, that Jesus lived perfectly under the word of his heavenly father. If you look at the book of John, there's all kinds of statements made through the book of John about how Jesus is only doing that which he hears his father saying to him. So in John 7, he says, my teaching is not mine, but it's his who sent me. In John chapter 12, he says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. John 14, 10, he says, do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the father who dwells in me does his works. And then again, in that same chapter in verse 24, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. See, Jesus lives beneath the authority of his father. And as his father is directing him, he does. And we see this all throughout Jesus' time in the Gospels. You know, Jesus gets baptized, and the first thing he does after he gets baptized is he goes out to the desert. And if you're just reading this for the first time, you're going, does this guy want to die? Like, what is he doing? He goes out into the desert, and he doesn't eat anything for 40 days and 40 nights. And in the midst of that, Satan comes and tempts him. And he says, hey, if you bow down and worship me, I'll turn these, these stones into bread. And Jesus says, hey, man doesn't live on bread alone, but by every word that, com- every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. So Jesus is one who was perfectly submitted to his Father's will, that he placed himself under the authority of God his Father consistently throughout his life. But it's not just that. It's also that Jesus lived in this flawless kind of dominion over creation. We see this most notably in Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples are out on this boat. And the storm kind of falls upon the sea. And Jesus stands up in the boat and he rebukes the wind and the waves. and, And the disciples say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? But that's not it. See, right after that story in Luke chapter 8, he goes to this foreign land of Gentiles. And he finds this man who's possessed by a demon. And so sure enough, this man is just crazy. And he drives the demons out into this herd of swine. And the swine go down into the lake and drown themselves. And Jesus has authority over demons. So he has authority over the storm, authority over demons. And then he comes back to Israel and he meets this hemorrhaging woman. And as he's walking through the crowds and people are pressing on him, Jesus says, who touched me? I felt power go out from me. And sure enough, he finds this woman who's been hemorrhaging for years and he heals her so that she stops bleeding. And then immediately he turns from there and he goes to this official's daughter who's dead, no longer breathing. And he raises her to life. So now he has power over the wind and the waves, power over demons, power over disease, power over death. Jesus rules over his creation in full dominion. 
And so what happens is Jesus is the picture of humanity. Jesus defines what humanity should be like. And it's not just that Jesus lays in front of us exactly what humanity should be. He restores our humanity. See, our humanity was broken in our sin, right? We no longer rule over creation. It groans underneath us. We have a broken relationship with our God. But Jesus Christ came and he bore our sinfulness on the cross so that he could take away that sin and that he could bring restoration. As we are united with Jesus Christ, we become truly human. We live out the fullness of our humanity. Now, let me just caveat that. It doesn't mean that all of the effects of sin are gone. You can't just go out to a jaguar and say, stop, don't do that. Run away if you see a jaguar, right? You can't tell the the earthquake to stop. You can't tell the wind and the waves or go outside right now and say, warm up. You don't get to do that. But as, as God is restoring us and bringing about this restoration, eventually we will live in that newness of humanity when God fully removes our sin, when God brings us fully into his presence. You read this verse all the time, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus is restoring my humanity by living his life in me. So that now I am restored and renewed and I'm living out this fullness of humanity that God has brought to my doorstep. See, we become the people God desired us to be in our union with Jesus through faith. Apart from faith in Christ, we are not as human as God designed us to be. And God is in the process of restoring our humanity. This morning I find four different ways that we kick against God's rule. And I want to just highlight these. You can take them down if you want, write notes, do whatever Um, But there's four different ways that we can respond to God's authoritative rule in our life. Because what this passage puts in front of us this morning is that God is an authoritative ruler over us. And we are about the work now of, through our resurrection in Christ, to live in submission to him. But we have to recognize that there's ways in which we want to kick against his rule and authority over us. We can be anti-authoritarian. We just reject God's rule outright. And the problem with this is that it creates fear in us. We create uh, fear of judgment. First John says that uh, you know, mercy triumphs over judgment, or we, we recognize that with, with uh, sin there's fear. So we struggle with fear. The second uh, thing that we see is animism or idolatry. We replace God with other gods. And, and this view kind of elevates creation to God's place. It, it belittles or denies God's true rule over us. And this view kind of leads to some shame, doesn't it? We can adapt God's words to us. We can kind of slightly change what God has said to us so that it kind of appeases the way uh, we want our life to be. We redefine God's rule according to our liking, and this creates guilt. But the final way is that we can live in acceptance of God's rule over us. We are responsible to God and to his word. We have responsibilities that we carry out in his world. 
and we bring this before you because you know I, I feel like sometimes we um, we struggle at times to to really get our finger on what exactly God calls us to. We just had this interaction with some friends where someone spoke up and they said, "You know, I feel like if I'm really submitted to God's will." I should be moving to the mission field. I should be adopting more kids. I should be selling everything I have and giving it to the poor. If I was really submitted to God's will in my life, I'd be doing these extravagant things. You ever feel just guilty about that? You just get so bound up in this sense of like, I should be doing more. I should be living out more. You know, I just... Read the the book uh, through Gates of Splendor, which is Elizabeth Elliot's recounting of her husband uh, Jim Elliot's death on the mission field. And as they go to reach this tribe in South America, uh, these four missionary pilots are, are struck down by this tribe. And, and you finish this book, and you go, hey, maybe maybe God's calling me to something more self giving. Maybe something, something more extravagant, some kind of uh, denial of myself in this great aggrandizing way. This morning we recognize that most of the Christian life is about doing normal, mundane things through faith. Most of what we do as expressions of our faith in Jesus Christ will be normal, everyday things. Changing diapers, sweeping the living room. If you're an employee, submitting your TPS reports. I don't even know what a TPS report is, but we do normal, everyday things through the lens of faith in a mighty God. Consider what God calls Adam and Eve to here in this passage. Have babies plants a garden. Not massive statements. Simple, everyday things that they're supposed to do through rich faith in the God who created them. And if we fail to see that God is glorified in the small moments, we're going to feel incessantly guilty. Like we're not doing enough. Here's the truth this morning, Christian, is is that you aren't justified by the extravagant things that you do for God. You're justified by the faith that you have in His Son, Jesus Christ. And your existence, your your existence and your continued faith in Jesus is the thing that brings honor and glory to Him. It's not the fullness of your schedule. It's not the extravagant things. It's not the selling of all of your possessions to give to the poor. This is what glorifies God. John 6, 29, Jesus says this, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. See, this morning, our work is trust. Our work is delight in the person of Christ. And as we live out this image-bearing before our world... It brings maximum honor and glory to him, right? So as you change the diaper, you say, I changed this diaper for the glory of God because I trust that God will raise this child to also be an image bearer, 
As you submit the TPS report, you say, I am being faithful in my job that God has given me to the glory of God. I'm going to fulfill it to the best of my duty, working as for God and not for men. As we interact with our friends and neighbors, we try to just exemplify a life submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. There's no selling of all of our possessions. There's no moving out to Ecuador. It's just the faithful life lived before God. And it's by faith that you recognize that this is particularly glorifying to Jesus. See, for God's image to shine through you, through me, we have to put our autonomy to death. This idea that we could define ourselves, that we could live our life, that we could make ourselves something. We have to put that to death. You cannot see yourself as both reliant upon God and self-defined. You cannot be both a follower of Christ and, as the culture would say, true to yourself. You can't do that. I think Oprah came out a couple years ago and she said, you know, you've got to own your story, which sounded really great. You've got to, you know, own who you are, be You do you, that kind of mentality. And the problem is that the call of Christ is to take up our cross, to put that old man to death, to say, I no longer want to be that person. I want to be renewed in the image of God through the grace of Jesus Christ. It's the question, who defines you? The answer is, God defines you whether you realize it or not. Whether you live in submission to the authority and rule of God or you don't, God is defining who you are. Let's pray. Father, this morning we want to live in submission to your will and to your word. We recognize, God, that you have uniquely suited us now, by your grace, we are renewed in Christ to hear your word and to live it out. So God, allow us to do exactly that. Allow us to live under your rule and authority for your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.